Well, I'm not Jose, as you could tell, because I'm not Puerto Rican, and I have a little bit of hair. Uh, don't start the tape yet. I can't believe I just said that. Um, I probably shouldn't have said that. Well, Acts 2. Let's go to Acts 2. And we're, as Kenny said, we're in the last of a mini-series. This is part three of a mini-series we're calling Devotion. Uh, Jose did part one, Kenny did part two last week, so if you missed those, go listen to the tape. And then this week is part three, and then we're off to Acts chapter three. Can you believe it? Um, crazy. March 1st, today, John Stady wore shorts. Anybody else wear shorts? Look at that. Yeah, some true Oregonians wearing shorts. March 1st, doesn't matter how cold or hot it's going to be. Acts 2 and the, the entire series on devotions is uh, from 42 to 47. We're going to cover just two verses today, starting in verse 44. Acts 2, verse 44. Everybody got that? Great. I'm going to read these. Here we go. Acts 2, 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Pretty brief, just a couple of uh, sentences, and it's Sentences is pretty easy to summarize it. All the believers were together. This group of believers met regularly. And they had everything in common. We're going to have to unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? You know? Well, I think what it really means is if you happen to own a Ferrari and you drove it here today, we're going to share it. Because <laughs> I've always wanted to drive one. And, you know, this is biblical, right? Share everything in common. Your Ferrari is my Ferrari, right? That's the way it should be. No, just kidding. Obviously, it's not what it means, but we'll talk about that in just a second. They sold property and possessions to give. And the Greek there implies an ongoing giving. It's not a one-time gift. It's an ongoing giving. And who's the gift to? To anyone who has need. Now, if you notice, these two verses start with all the believers and ends with to anyone who has need. Uh, Flip over to chapter 4 briefly. Chapter 4, verse 32, there's actually a parallel passage uh, that says almost the same thing, and we're going to read that today. That way, when we get to chapter 4, about 10 years from now, uh, we'll be able to skip this this part. But here we go, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Notice it starts the same, all the believers. And when we get to the end of this short passage, it's going to end the same as the Acts chapter 2 passage. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had Need. Again, notice it starts all the believers and ends to anyone who had need. But here in chapter 4, Luke adds a couple things. Not only were the believers together, but we see verse 32. It says they were of one heart and mind. They shared everything that they have. And in the middle of this section, it almost looks out of place as he's talking about the sharing and giving to the needy. He says they're testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection with great power, which is interesting. He throws that in there. In the midst of giving 
and helping the church, they're still testifying. We'd have to do both. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And no one in the church was needy, which is interesting because Acts 2 hints at that. But Acts 4, he just comes out and says, this was a successful program. And in Acts 2, he talks about selling possessions. Here, he actually names that some of the possessions were houses and property. I actually met a man once who gave his house to the church. That was a trip. When I was talking to him about it, he said, um, he's obviously a wealthy guy. He said, uh, I've, I've got to sell my house and move into an assisted living. And I decided just to give the house to the church. Whoa, I've never heard of that before. But it is actually in the Bible. People actually did that. Now, to understand this passage, we need to go back a little bit culturally and understand how Jewish people would think in the first century. Because remember, all these early believers were Jewish. To help us out culturally, we want to ask the question, what kind of jobs did people have in the first century? What kind of jobs did they have? We tend to think that everybody was a farmer and lived off the land. And it's true, it was a very agrarian society. It's mostly farmers, but a lot of other jobs. I'm going to put these up on the slide for you, just so you can see the broad spectrum of jobs that existed in the first century. And these Israelites that gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost uh, actually would have had many of these jobs. So there was obviously wheat farmers and barley farmers and uh, folks that dealt with all sorts of livestock, sheep, goats, cattle. Fishermen were probably the folks that came from the Galilee region up in uh, the north of Israel because I don't think the fishing was very good out of Jerusalem because there aren't any lakes and rivers to speak of. Carpentry was an interesting job, and we all know that Jesus was some kind of a craftsman, probably a carpenter, maybe did some roof work and some stone work. But have you ever thought of what does a carpenter do? In first century, when the homes were built out of stones. Well, the doors on the homes were wood. The window structures were a lattice structure. The gates were out of woods. And a lot of the farm implements had wood portions. The yokes were made out of uh, wood. Uh, The uh, threshing sleds for the threshing wheat were made out of woods. Parts of plows were made out of wood. And the jobs go on and on. There's stonemasons and metal workers and pottery uh, uh, potters and bakers and tanners. And then I have another page of jobs, barbers, counselors, lawyers, judges, a fuller. Well, what's that? That's different. There were no dry cleaners in the first century. They just didn't have them. Instead, when the clothes got particularly nasty, you gave them to a fuller who would go bleach them. In Jerusalem, they actually did this outside of the city in one of the valleys because it stunk pretty bad. But that was a job. Somebody was a fuller in bleached clothes. Hunters, merchants, musicians, nurses, physicians, perfumers, weavers, tent makers, which we know that Paul was in the, in the, the job of a, of a tent maker. So they had all sorts of jobs, not just farmers. And where did they live? What kind of houses did people live in? One of the things I find interesting that today, I looked it up in Washington County, 61% own their own homes. So if we're represented that, you know, six out of ten of us own a home and four are, are renting. In the first century in, in Israel, scholars think about 15% of people owned their homes. Now, you, you might think, well, that's a big difference, 60%, 15%. But the 30-year mortgage hadn't been invented in the first century. So if you just bought a house, I'm sad to say, you don't actually own it. The bank owns it. You just own a piece of paper that says you owe them for the next 30 years. So if you take that 60% number and adjust it for all the 30-year mortgages, 
actual homeownership in Washington County is about 20%. In the first century, it's about 15%. So what kind of houses do they, look, do they live in? It's something called a four-room house, which you see all over Israel. If you go visit, you look at all the ruins, there's all these four-room houses. There was an open courtyard. There was a roofed courtyard. That's where all the bathing happened and the cooking happened so the smoke would uh, not be in the house. The rooms were small. It was a storage room. And the storage room kept uh, your kitchenware, your supplies, storage jars. And then the back room was the biggest room, which was a, a dual-purpose dining room, sleeping area. And the, the, the rooms were pretty primitive. There were some wealthy people with big, nice houses. When the apostles met in the uh, room uh, in the day of Pentecost when there's 120 people in one room. That's a big, wealthy house, right? The Last Supper was probably in a more wealthy house. But most houses were more like this four bedroom house. And those houses were floors with beaten clay. As I said, the doors were wood. The roofs were made out of brushwood, mixture of straw and mud, and they were flat so you could double as a room when it was particularly hot. Um, the curtains, uh, the, the rooms were separated by curtains, not, not doors particularly. Household furniture was particularly simple. Only the wealthiest had a bed. Most people slept on mats, and there weren't mostly tables and chairs. You also ate off a mat. So the mat was put out for the dining, and then the mat was put out for sleeping, and the curtain was drawn so you could sleep. Light was just from a simple oil uh, clay lamp. So what's the point? Why why are you talking about all these old jobs and these old houses? Well, what's the point? Well, what's the relevance, I think, is today... Life, in some ways, is very different. Would you agree? I mean, we have smartphones, Netflix, cars that we're going to share, right? Uh, And Chipotle, you know, these are great inventions, all of them, wonderful. But in some ways, life today is exactly the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Because if you think about it, all of us in this room have to be part of, if you're single, either you're, yourself or if you're part of a family, you have to work some kind of a job to put food on the table, and you have to live somewhere, either rent or own a house or apartment. That's not very different than the first century. Everybody had to have some kind of job. You saw the long list of jobs, and you have to live somewhere to get out of the elements. So in some ways, we're not that different. So if you go back to Acts chapter 2, With that in mind, these people, even though they didn't have the technological advances that we have today, they worked and they slept and ate in homes and houses. And Acts chapter 2, 44 says, All the believers were together, they had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to the needy. If we look at this passage and that passage in Acts 4, what is the summary statement? I believe it's really simple. I'll put it up on the slide for you. All the believers... The church, because the believers are the church, were unified in generosity. All the believers were unified in generosity. Everybody had this common one heart, one mind. This is what we're going to do. We're going to help the needy. And all the while, we're going to preach Jesus. Now, when the passage says they all had everything in common, was Luke preaching some kind of first century socialism or first century communism? I'm here to tell you, no, nobody believes that. It's actually pretty simple to come to that conclusion for two reasons. One is the giving here was voluntary. It was voluntary, whereas socialism and communism is a government-mandated system. We don't 
live under that in the church. Secondly, as I already said, the Greek verb uh, shows that it's an ongoing giving. And, and later on in Acts, you'll see more and more giving and more and more properties sold to give continuously. Under socialism and communism, you give it all at once and then everybody owes everything and you don't own anything anymore. So it's not communism or socialism. So what is it? You know, I think a story from Vicky and I, my wife, Vicky, who's down in the front row. We lived in Germany in 1990, actually West Germany in 1990, because there was still an East Germany. If you remember, that was under the communist rule. And in 1990, one of the most amazing things in that century happened. The Berlin, the Berlin Wall came down. And all of a sudden, on one day, what was East Germany and West Germany became one Germany. And guess what happened? Well, the East Germans weren't very sure how long that wall was going to come down, right? They had an incredible distrust of the, of the communist system. So if you're living in that country, what do you do? You flee. And it was the largest traffic jam in all of history. The Autobahn was full of cars for miles and miles and miles with their worldly possessions stacked up on top and tied with a rope. Uh, I happened to be in the Air Force. I remember flying down the Autobahn for miles looking at this traffic jam and saying, oh, my goodness, where are all these people going to go? Well, guess where they went? They went everywhere in West Germany. A lot of the folks in East Germany had relatives in West Germany, and they had never met them because the, the wall had been up for so long. But they had their addresses. They corresponded by letters. And after the traffic jam finally succeeded, they showed up. And the little town we were living in, Castellan, Germany, all of a sudden, all these East Germans started showing up, connecting with relatives that they may or may not know or seen. Guess what they did? They brought them in their home. They shared everything, and they had everything in common. You live here. You use my car. You eat our groceries. And I think that is the picture of what was happening here. Remember, all the Israelites had come for Pentecost. Then the Holy Spirit came. 3,000 were saved. And all of a sudden, we have a new entity. And they shared everything and met everybody's needs. So if Luke's not preaching communism or socialism, what is he preaching? Remember that these believers were Jewish. So we have to think like an Israelite would, and that would be going to the Old Testament. So let's do that now. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. The, the Pentateuch, the Torah, probably one of the most important books in the Bible. If you're not familiar with it, I'd highly, highly recommend reading it. If you really want to understand Jewish cultures and laws, uh, Deuteronomy is a good spot to start. And we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1 of chapter 15. Um, but I'm going to go pretty fast because we don't have time to do the whole background. Chapter 14, by the way, talks about the tithes and the laws of giving. Chapter 15 starts out with this really interesting piece of the Scripture where uh, there's a Sabbath year. We're familiar with the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, the day of rest. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, it actually talks about a, a Sabbath year. And that's a year where all debts are canceled. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 15, verse 1, and then uh, move pretty quickly to what I want to show you later in the passage. So Deuteronomy, everybody there? Chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. By the way, I know sometimes reading the Old Testament is kind of difficult, but I love getting to passages like this. This is how it's done. 
Wake up. This isn't that tough. This is how it's done. So you have a debt, okay? This is how it's done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan that they may have to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner. You know, those Moabites, Edomites, and Texans, make them pay. But the Israelites, no, not going to make them pay. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes. Now, that's kind of the background of what I really want you to see here in verse 4. Verse 4, huge. If you fell asleep momentarily, wake back up. Verse 4 is important, important, important. However, there need be no poor people among you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. But then what does your translation start verse 5 with? If. Really significant when if shows up, right? If. There's a condition to this promise of blessing. If only you fully Uh, If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. God's economy is such that the way he designed it, there need be no poor people. If the Israelites fully obey and follow all the commands. Now, did they do that? Unfortunately, you read the rest of the Hebrew Bible, and the answer is no. Skip down to verse 7. So Moses knows this, you know, God knows this, and through Moses, as he writes this, he knows that he's going to have to deal with poor people. Verse 7, if anyone is poor among you, I'm sorry, among your fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Skip down to verse 10. And as I read verse 10, ask yourself, does this sound like the Old Testament or the New Testament? Just listen to the tone of this in verse 10. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we tend to think that the Old Testament is about the law and you must, thou shalt, give 10% or die. You know, we tend to think that way. But that's not what the tone of this passage is. It says give generously without a grudging heart. You know, Paul says it this way. If we flip to the passage, we'll put it up on the screen for you. You don't need to, you don't need to turn there. Um, but uh, sorry about that prayer. Let's skip back to the next slide with verse 4 and verse 7 on the screen right there. This is the ideal. Verse 4 is that there need not be any poor. But verse 11, 11 is the reality of there will always be poor. If we look at verse 11... In, in, the, in the scriptures, there will always be poor people in the land. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy um, in your land. The reality is different than the ideal, unfortunately. I think one of the saddest things Jesus ever said is in, in Matthew 26 is that you'll always have the poor with you. Jesus said that. He knows the reality, even though that's not the design. As Paul goes on to teach the same thing in 2 Corinthians, I'll put that up on the slide for you. This is the, the, the verse you've probably heard more than the Deuteronomy verse, but it's the exact same tone. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful 
giver. You've heard that, you know that, and the Deuteronomy passage is very, very similar. What's the point? I think the point is from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from pre-Jesus to post-Jesus, pre-Holy Spirit, Pentecost, post-Holy uh, Spirit, Pentecost, the teaching is the same. It's all about generosity. That's what is taught throughout scriptures very, very Consistently, So we do the best as a church to battle the reality of poverty, to take care of the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And we do all this while we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't miss the fact that this passage about sharing and helping those who are in need comes on the heels of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, and then we see this crazy generosity actually Happen. We can't miss the fact that in chapter 4, in the midst of talking about crazy generosity, the disciples were preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with great power. Where does the power come from? The power comes from the Holy Spirit. So, what's the question for the day? You could probably guess it, hopefully. The, the question for the day is, how well am I listening to the Holy Spirit in the area of generosity. How well am I listening? Now, usually, I know some of you have heard messages like this, and you're going, oh, man, we're going to talk about the giving sermon again. Tune out, get some coffee, and chill. Uh, Because right about now, the guy's going to try to tell me I should give some more. Now, I want to put a disclaimer out here. I'm an elder at this church. I'm not on staff. I don't get paid. Um, So that's not you know, that's not why I'm up here. What I'm trying to do is explain what the scriptures say about generosity. And instead of telling you what I think you should do right now, what I'm going to do is spend the next several minutes and tell you what Vicki and I did when we started going to church. And there's a lot of not so good stuff in there. So I'm a little apprehensive about doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm hopefully something I say sparks you and the Holy Spirit in you to prompt you to do what the Holy Spirit's telling you. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to tell you to do, but I can tell you what the Holy Spirit told Vicki and I to do over the years. So I'm going to tell you how we started. And we started pretty bad. I mean, really bad. When we first got married, Vicki was a brand new Christian. I had only been a Christian for two or three years. And we didn't give Jack. I mean, we didn't give anything. Well, I shouldn't say anything. Sometimes when the basket would pass, we'd throw a $5 bill in there or something. We didn't know about giving. We didn't know the Bible. We didn't know about this crazy, generous stuff that goes on in the Bible. So we, we weren't doing very good. And then uh, we, both, we were both in the, in the Air Force, and we, we uh, got promoted from second lieutenant to first lieutenant. So now we're rolling in the cash, right? No, not really. But we made a little bit extra. And I started listening to Christian financial planners and Christian financial counselors. And I'm sad to report to you that I think most of them miss the mark. Uh, another disclaimer, if you're here today and you're a Christian financial counselor or a Christian financial pl- uh, planner, uh, I'm, start, I'm sorry that I'm about to step on your toes. Hopefully I'm not, but I'm, if I do, I'm sorry. And come talk to me afterwards and I could ask forgiveness in person. But I think most Christian financial planners and Christian financial counselors completely miss the biblical teaching. And this is why almost everyone I've seen preaches financial independence or financial security. Save, grow your next nest egg, and everything's going to be okay. I don't see that anywhere in the scripture. Thank you. 
Awesome. We have Baptists here. Yes. <laughs> so I just don't see it. Uh, I read some scriptures that really confused me as a new believer. And these guys are saying financial independence, financial security. Um, Perry's going to put this up on the slide for us. Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. You don't need to turn there. It's on the screen. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Wow, that, that doesn't sound like financial security independence to me. That sounds like my personal experience when I get $100 out of the ATM, and a week later, like, what did I spend that on? It's just gone, right? That's our experience, right? Now, don't get me wrong. We should save. We should have a plan. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, in a section that talks about taking care of widows, has some very, very strong language. Listen to this. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Like, he's letting it rip there. So the point is, is take care of the needy. It's not be financially independent or financially secure. 1 Timothy also, uh, chapter 6, goes on to say, Command those who are rich in this present world. Let me stop there. Command those who are rich in this present world. Some of us, when we read that, and I used to be like this, go, oh, that's the guy down the block with the four-car garage, and, you know, he actually does have a Ferrari, right? He's the rich guy. I'm not. But this doesn't say command those who are rich on your block or command those who are rich in Oregon or in the United States. It says command those who are rich in this world. In the world economy, if you drove a car here today, you're rich. You really are. Let me get more practical. If you used a flush toilet this week, you're rich. And we thank God for that, right? (laughs) These are good things. These are not bad things. These are good things. But it makes us, in the world's economy, we are the rich ones. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But it gives us a responsibility. What do we do about it? Well, let's, let's see what, what Paul says. Command those who are rich in this present world, 99% of us probably, not to be arrogant. And here's this financial security independence stuff again. Don't be arrogant, and nor put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope, uh, uh, but to put their hope in God. Put your hope in God. It's not about financial independence and financial security. It's about God dependence and God security. That's what the Bible says. And God will richly provide us with everything for, uh, for our enjoyment, including our houses and our cars and our flush toilets. And we thank God for these things. We don't take them for granted. We don't think it's because of our wisdom or because we're so smart. We just happen to be born in a country that's rich. Now, we have some other things that we're not rich about. We'll get to those in a second. But that's what the Bible says. Jesus says it this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, but store up for yourselves treasures. Uh, I'm sorry. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up your, yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Vicky and I finally started giving. We started with a few percent, and then we got to 5%, and this was super freeing, and, and we had a lot of joy with it. And then we heard a sermon that said, you should give 10% of your gross salary. Oh, snap. Uh, what do we do now? So we pray, right? We started praying, and we thought about this, and it was actually a fairly easy decision to make. Yep, 
We're blessed enough. We should get there. We're not there right now, but we should move that direction. And as quickly as we, we, uh, we, could, we, could, we could, we got there, uh, giving 10% of our gross salary. We started having some kids. We wanted to teach them the joy of giving. So when they got an allowance, you know, when they were 25, no, just kidding. When, when they were younger, we started giving them an allowance. We taught them the 80-10-10 rule, you know, keep 80%. Save 10% and give 10%. It takes a little work on the parents' sake because we didn't give them very big allowances. So I was always going and getting rolls of quarters in the bank so I can give them change so they could put their 10% in their giving envelope. And they developed the habit and discipline of giving. And let's be candid. Sometimes that's hard, right? Most of the weeks it wasn't that bad. But every once in a while the transmission goes out on the car. That costs money. I just had a root canal a couple of weeks ago, my first one. What a joy that was. Uh, we don't have dental insurance. I had no idea root canals cost over $1,000. I, I do now, uh, but that's just the way it goes, right? But whenever we had a problem, we always tried to give it uh, the 10%. Most of the times we were able to do that. And then we went through a season of unemployment or underemployment, unemployment, whatever you want to call it. Eight months, eight months without a real job. We decided the few little odd jobs I had to still give 10% out of that. And the reason why is because we can't live off of this job anyway. So, you know, we might as well go broke faster and have the joy of giving. It just seemed wise to us. And then I got a good job, finally. After lots of praying and sacrifice, I got a good job. We were able to start giving more. And I started, we started praying about maybe we should give more than 10%. In 1 Timothy 6, that same passage to, to the rich, it says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Our thought, Vicky's and I's, was to, not, was to give 10% or more to the local church and give as much as we possibly could. Then our kids were in high school. And we really wanted to, to teach them to give. And if you've been around uh, the Jesus for Church family, formerly known as Solid Rock, for, for many years, you know at the end of the year we often give these little these giving catalogs where we can give extra gifts. Most of, most of it's international. Some of it's local. You guys know what I'm talking about, where you can give extra. We said, we're going to do something really crazy. We're going to give our kids money to give. But we wanted to make it an impact. So we gave them more money than they'd ever seen in their life. Vicky, I don't remember what it was, but it was over a thousand bucks each. And for a for a high schooler, they went big eyes. Whoa! Here's what happened, which we did not expect. They just didn't make a pop decision. Okay, I, I look at the catalog. I dig this one. They spent days looking at the catalog, praying, asking God, "Where do I give?" And then each of them gave it to something different. But that was an interesting thing for me. I started to really, really understand because I wasn't brought up that way about how much joy there is. And giving, and then um, as the job went on, uh, me and a couple guys started our own business, and that was starting to, to to do well. And I had an opportunity to sell the business, and I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to sell it. And we had this thing starting up. We we're talking about on the West Side called the House of Learning. Maybe some of you have been to it. And Vicky and I were blessed to start going to seminary, and I felt the prompting of the Spirit to say. Uh, enough's enough with this job, this job, I've got other things that I want you to do. I was invited to a conference by a friend, and the guy that was speaking was speaking out of Luke 12. And Luke 12 is the parable of the rich fool. 
And, you know, you may not know the Bible very well, but nobody wants to be the rich fool, right? That's, that's easy. And he got to verse 18, and the rich fool says this. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me, saying, your barns are big enough. It's time for you to sell your barns, live off the proceeds, and go do more work for me and my kingdom. That was a pretty radical thing, pretty scary thing. But I finally shared it with Vicky, and I told her what was gone. And for those of you who know Vicky, wouldn't be surprised. She just said, finally. She had been there for about six months, right? She knew this was going on. She knew that this was what the Holy Spirit was guiding us to do. So we did, so we did that. We sold our business, and we started the House of Learning. We finished up seminary, and now we're doing other things for the church. Now, am I saying that everybody that owns a business should sell it? No, of course not. Most of you probably shouldn't sell. You should keep working it. In fact, matter of fact, my old business, uh, one of the guys that goes there, uh, works there, is an elder at a different church, and he's still there. He didn't sell the opportunity to sell, and he's continuing to give to his local church. But what I am saying is, listen to the Holy Spirit. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to tell you, and you don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to tell you unless you listen. So we have to listen to the Holy Spirit. And the point is, is obviously to obey. Now, back to the Acts 2 passage, you might have noticed that it's fairly specific about how the money was given, but it doesn't say anything about how the money was distributed. How did the disciples and apostles, how did they distribute this money? It's, it's absent. It does, it's not there. The best thing we could come up with is God leaves that up to each individual church to do what they feel is best and wise. So how did that happen here at our church? Uh, well, uh, fortunately, I've been blessed with being an elder at a Jesus Church family since the beginning, which will be 11 years on Easter. Can you believe that? Kind of crazy to think about. And there was an elder meeting, I don't know, year two or three, something like that. Uh, and as a startup church, we, we were always short of funds, no surprise. But then we kind of got over the hump, so to speak. You guys know what I'm probably talking about. And we're like, we're not, we're not doing really well, but we're not, we're not wondering if we're going to be able to pay our bills this month, which is kind of a nice feeling. And as soon as we got there, somebody said, you know, we as a church, we should give 10% to the poor, the orphan, the widow, because that's what the Bible instructs individuals should do. So we should do that as a community. And again, listen to the messages from the last couple of weeks about community, because this giving is not just individualistic, it's a community. So we decided as an elder team that we're going to start giving 10% to the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And that became known as the Hear the Cry budget that some of you are very, very familiar with. So we made that decision with fear and trembling, because you could guess how those discussions went. We're going to start giving 10%, and then the giving's going to go down, and then what are we going to do? Because we've committed to these organizations. So there's a step of faith. There's always a step of faith when you give. You're always going to be wondering, and Satan is going to tell you you're going to run out of money. But God is a giver, and he's generous. So we have to have faith in what God's going to do in these circumstances. So we started giving 10% to hear the cry, which I'm going to have some slides on in just a second. And after that went pretty well for about a year, someone said, you know, this is wonderful that we're doing all this justice work. But we also need to evangelize the world and tell the world about Jesus Christ. And the way that works primarily in scriptures is through churches and evangelists. So we said we're going to start another budget. 
we called it Go. Now it's been changed, I think, to Church Plant and Evangelism, but whatever. It, this budget is for church plants and for evangelism to tell people about Jesus Christ. And I love that because right in the middle of Acts 4, that passage, when it talks about giving to the needy, it says the apostles proclaimed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with great power. So that's how the next uh, chunk of money went. So every dollar you give here, 10% goes to hear the cry, 10% goes to church plant and evangelism. So you don't really need or feel compelled to give to anywhere else if you don't want to. We're kind of helping you out and and making it really, really easy on you. Now, most of you have heard about these two budgets. I want to spend a little bit of time just telling you a little bit more about where that money actually goes. So here the cry on the slides is first we do some trips to a bunch of places, Iraq, Haiti, Myanmar, Nicaragua, Thailand, India, Uganda, Zimbabwe. Some of you have been on those trips. I pray that many of you continue to go on those trips. They're not too expensive to the church because we ask the individuals going on the trips to pay their own way. So that's the trips. And then we have a bunch of partners, because why not partner with the folks that have already figured out how to serve? So look at all these partners that your money and your generosity and your giving goes to. African Renewal Ministries in Uganda, Grace Village in Haiti, Hands of Hope in Zimbabwe. Do you remember when Glenn Miller came and spoke to us at uh, Liberty, uh, when we were in Liberty High School? That's the organization that he works with. Remember New, Restore Haiti, Restore International. These numbers have faces. Jason came and spoke to Sunset uh, maybe about a year ago, if you remember that. But we don't just give to Hear the Cry International. We give to Hear the Cry Local. And these are local organizations that happen to be all kids-focused. Royal Family Kids Camp, which helps abused kids. Door to Grace, which helps uh, sexually exploited kids. And then Embrace Oregon, which helps foster kids. And Embrace Oregon is... Uh, connecting churches in DHS to uh, help kids get adopted. These are good things. These are the needs in our local community. And then the church plant and evangelism budget, where does that money go? Um, Obviously, we've planted two churches, Bridgetown and Sunset. When Sunset started, we wouldn't have been able to get the jump start we had without the the money from uh, the GoFund. Vineyard Church in Estonia, you're familiar with Miguel, Jose's brother, Resound in Hillsborough, Theophilus in Portland on the east side, Emmaus in North Carolina. Those are all the churches. And then the Evangelistic uh, Association is Luis Palau. Some of you work there, right? This church supports that work, and we want to do more of that work. So again, every dollar you give, 20% goes to all these organizations, and we're going to continue that as, as long as we possibly can. Now, I want to do one more announcement today, and this is something that not many of you know about it. I'm going to talk to you about Jose, who, by the way, is in Uganda. I got a text from him this morning. He'll be back Tuesday, preaching next week, so pray for him. He's uh, doing the legwork for a Uganda trip in the spring, and he's talking to pastors and helping out with that. Jose, for those of you who don't know that, know, uh, had his own organiza- has his own organization, Jose Zayas International. The website is josezayas.org. Pretty simple. I encourage you to go there and check this out. But J-Z-E-I, Jose Zayas Evangelistic International, has been around for 15 years. It's actually been around longer than the Jesus Church family. And Jose used to get paid by that organization because that was his full-time job. When he came on staff at a Jesus Church, and and as the Sunset uh, Church was planted became the lead pastor, Jose no longer takes a salary from JZEI, from this organization. I'm going to say that again to make sure you didn't miss it. 
Jose does not take a salary from JZEI, this organization. He's only paid by Sunset. So what your lead pastor is doing is he's practicing what he preaches. We're supposed to give and be generous. The way Jose's giving and generous, he's using the skills that God gave him as a gifted evangelist, and he's doing that. And he's not getting paid for that. This is like his volunteer work, if you will. So just like some of you work in the kids' ministry or in the band or with hospitality or all the different, tri- all the different things that you're doing as volunteers, Jose's also doing that. Uh, this is not something that he does to get paid more money. So what happens here is if, if Jose's not getting paid by it, what's the purpose of it? Well, the purpose of this organization is to raise funds for evangelism. And there's about 40 or 50 families across the country that give to JZEI. And most of those families don't even go to this church. Most of you are probably going, wow, I didn't even know Jose had an organization. Why didn't you tell me earlier? Why did you wait three years? Well, because we're kind of patient and financial accountability is very, very, very high on our list. We wanted to make sure that there was no sense of Jose having two jobs and he's doing two things. Jose is one person with one heart, just like we are, and he has one thing on mind, to preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does it in two places. He does it here and he does it internationally. And the trips that JZEI has planned this year are to Uganda, the UK, and Romania. The harsh reality is the monies from the GOA fund don't fully fund those three trips. So where does the rest of the money come from? Where does it come from? It comes from JZEI, from these 40 or 50 contributors. So we wanted to give you the opportunity to at least know about it. And if you want to give to that, go onto this website. It's real simple. There's a donate button. You can go online. Now, to make this be a little bit more real to you, I'm going to ask Tim Greger and Scott Ballard to come on up. Uh, these guys have been involved with JZEI on the ground. Uh, by the way, the board of JZEI, it is a 501c3. The board is Jose, Scott Ballard, and myself. And we're going to turn that thing on. And we're going to just talk a little bit about this. Now, Tim went on a trip with JZEI. In what year, Tim, was it? Uh, 2009, 10, and 11. Oh, okay, three. three. I thought it was just two. But anyway, what kind of trip did you originally plan to go on? Um, certainly not an outreach trip. Uh, <laughs> Why is that? I, well, I believe the lie from the enemy that says that you really can only give people what you're good at. And I was, I'm a construction guy. So for me, I had to be going on a construction trip. And I remember an opportunity to go to Zimbabwe to help um, Glenn build some homes there. And uh, I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I responded too late. The team had already been filled. And so then the next year in 2009... I don't know if it was Jose or somebody, they talked about uh, the opportunity to go on a trip, and so there were several options. You could go to these five countries or whatever it was, and I just kept hearing God say, uh, the outreach trip, the outreach trip, and I, it's hard for me to stand in front of a group of people, and I I kept telling them, I don't want to do it. (laughs) And what, what got you over that, Tim? Um, I wanted to grow in my faith, and I knew that that's undeniably what he was calling me to do. Um, so even though I was, was, I believed I was incapable, I didn't have anything to offer, I just said, forget it, I'm going. 
What, what advice would you have for somebody that's considering going? First, don't listen to the lie. Um, God has redeemed you if you've, if you've received him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus has the power that you need to be used. Um, the biggest lessons that I learned was, one, trust, and two, be willing. If you're willing, you can be used. Um, he uses your failures, your mistakes, uh, your mess of a life of trying to live on your own, and he turns it into a message that reaches people. Um, and I saw it in every one of my teammates, from um, high schoolers to um, you know my people like my parents' age and in between, male, female, uh, just people that wanted to be used. That's all that we required. Mm-hmm. Scott, how many trips have you been on? Over, I think this is number seven to Uganda. Seven in to the Uganda? last six years or so. Yeah. And what about total other places? I think twenty-five in the 25? last seven years. Are you know, bored? Like no, this is who I am. So <laughs> this so, is my thing. So, so w- when is the trip to Uganda this spring? Yeah, it's uh, June twenty-seventh through July thirteenth. Okay. There's still spots. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, what would be the one thing that you tell people that are considering to consider if they're thinking about possibly going to Uganda, of all places, in June? Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting God's timing of Acts and missional community. And if we want to learn how to live on mission, go on mission so you can learn there and come back to Hillsborough or the Sunset Quarter and yeah. live it out. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll be around. Thanks, guys. So yeah, both these guys are going to be around right down in front after the gathering, uh, after the baptisms. So come talk to them because obviously June's coming uh, pretty quickly and we don't want to uh, delay. We want you to miss a trip. Um, thanks, Tim and Scott, for doing that. Yeah, have it a hand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's time to wrap up because we actually have six baptisms that are scheduled that we know about. Uh, we pray that the Lord would double that. So if you are sitting here today and you haven't thought about baptism, uh, maybe today is the day. You've got, you've got a little bit of time to think about it because you've got six people in front of you. But how do we wrap up today's lesson? What's the summary? What's the takeaway? Hopefully, uh, I, my message to you today was clear, and that is we as a community need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Just listen to the Holy Spirit. Again, I've said it a couple of times. I'll say it again. I don't know what the Holy Spirit has in store for you. He's way smarter than you, me, and all of us put together, right? But the Holy Spirit has a plan for us to be generous. And in our generosity, God will bless us. Let's pray.